0: Hello and welcome to RCSI My Health. This podcast explores a wide range of areas in health and wellbeing and brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in these fields. Our goal is to empower you with the right knowledge so that you can make informed decisions about your health and wellbeing. We hope you enjoy today's episode.
1: Hello and welcome to the RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Uh, I'm Kieran O'Boyle, and today we're going to discuss mental health matters, uh, understanding and supporting youth mental health. And this panel discussion forms part of the RCSI My Health series. As many of you will know, the series explores a a wide range of health and wellbeing issues, brings together some of the leading healthcare experts in the field. And the goal is to empower you uh, to make more informed decisions Uh, about health and well-being. So today I'm joined by uh, Professor Patrick McGorry, who's the Executive Director of Origin and Professor of Youth Mental Health at the Centre for Youth Mental Health at the University of Melbourne. Professor Mary Cannon is based in the Department of Psychiatry here in the RCSI University of Medicine and Health Sciences. Lisa McCarthy is a third year medical student here at RCSI and we're also joined by Dr. Helen Cochran from the Department of Psychiatry, again here at the RCSI. So to begin, Pat, can I turn to you? Why is it important for us to talk about youth mental health?
2: Well, mental ill health is the biggest threat to young people's lives and futures. And every society is very dependent on the next generation coming through. And people often think, well, that's, that's the little kids. But these days the health of, of young children is, is never been better. The, the, the threats to their, their health and, and, and lives have really mostly been dealt with through advances in medicine and public health. But the big problem we have now is the deteriorating mental health of young people in transition from puberty through to mature adult life. So it's the 12 to 25 age group. And we know from, particularly from high income countries, that their mental health has been deteriorating sharply over the last 15 years. And already it was the main period of life in which the adult-type mental illnesses like schizophrenia, depression, um, other mood disorders, eating disorder, all of those illnesses appear in, in this transitional phase from puberty through to, say, the, the mid-20s. So it's been massively neglected. Uh, it's caused a lot of unnecessary deaths, preventable deaths, and you know more subtly, you know, lost futures where young people don't fulfill their potential or they end up on welfare and you know, it's a massive waste which society has failed to address. Yeah,
1: So it's a really important cohort and a vulnerable cohort uh, is what we're talking about here. Thanks for that. Mary, can, can I turn to you? What do we know about the, about youth mental health at this stage?
3: Well... The key thing we know about uh, mental health in general, as, as Pat was saying, is actually it's 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 an illness that onsets earlier in life. You know, because not, you know for all physical illnesses, um, you know that your your teens, your twenties, they're, they're the healthiest part of life. But this is when the most of major mental illness actually starts. So we're moving in in psychiatry and mental health more to early intervention now. You know, we used to wait until things had had got uh, you know a a critical stage but now we're thinking okay we need to we need to tackle things early we need to get to the roots of uh, root causes and the early signs so this means we really have to focus on young people and so it's it's taken a while but I think slowly think that the the focus is now shifting back and we have to create the services to match that um, if that for that age group
1: so this is as important for adult psychiatry as it is for. It is for, because we're preventing, can, we're getting early. if you yeah. can
3: move in early, you could possibly prevent illnesses, yes. you know, in later life or improve their outcomes so they're, they 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 don't become chronic illnesses.
1: Right, that's quite a hopeful sort of mm. uh, way of thinking. The same question to you: what, What's your take on on youth mental health?
4: Yeah, I think it's it's constantly evolving. So I think that as a young person today, um. The the issues of mental health, you know, they've always affected generations before you. But today, the way in which you're affected by them and the things that you're affected by are always changing. So, comparison has never been more available to young people, um, comparing your own situation to people, other people's situations through the internet and through technology. So, the inputs that you're receiving every single day that affect your mental health, I think that's outpacing at times our ability to support young people um, because we don't always know what those things are until it's on the news or there's been research done about it. So I think that that's a, a really big challenge for uh, mental health professionals and, and young people too.
1: That's really interesting. It's a complete difference from the time I grew up. I mean, the, the pressures are, are very different and the, the connections are, are huge and the challenges are huge for, for young people. Yeah. Helen, can I can I ask you the same question? Your perspective.
0: Yeah, and, and just listening to, to Lisa there, I think there's a really interesting thing happening around youth mental health at the moment, which is that young people are talking massively about mental health. It is it is very much in the language of of youth, and when we know young people are increasingly talking about it, and it's a, and they identify it as a significant issue for themselves and their peers. Where there's a real kind of struggle or tension is that that what we find is young people are very, very adept and willing to talk about mental health, about their peers, their friends, their siblings, but there remains a stigma um, and a self-stigma often for young people about possibly acknowledging their own struggles, their own difficulties. And there's some, something about, you know, being able to talk about you and somebody I know, as opposed to that real difficulty of saying, well, it's actually me who's struggling. And what we're trying to do, I think, in the in the youth mental health space and field, is to encourage those young people and those who are actually suffering, to be able to say, actually, I am not okay, yes. uh, and really highlighting the message that that being able to say that, um, and to let people know and to reach out for support, is really important. But there's still work to be done with young people; they're reluctant often to to reach out
1: and seek help. So the stigma is reducing, but there's it still needs to be reduced much further. Is that is that?
0: Yeah. So the stigma still. Societally, yes. there's stigma around uh, mental ill health, certainly. So we, people are very comfortable talking about mental health, not so much about mental ill health or mental illness. Um, but really, one of the biggest barriers for young people is self-stigma. Yes, yes. So it's a, it's a perceived perception that you are somehow failing or weak or you know, that you're going to be exposed as, as, or, or pushed aside or judged because... You are struggling uh, with your mental health, or that you certainly will you know judge yourself. And until we get over that real stigma that people apply to themselves, we're really you know going to have to tackle that one as well as the things like services and resources that that young people need.
1: Good, thank you. And we'll come to resources in in, in a little while. Mary, we, we, we're coming through hopefully at the end of this uh, pandemic. So what has the impact of the pandemic been, do you think, on youth mental health?
3: Yes, we, we it's it's obviously something we're, we're still studying because, we're, as you say, we're just coming out of this now. But it it's seeming from data that we're collecting from secondary school students at the moment that it has had a big impact on mental health. In, in fact, in one recent survey of 15, 16-year-olds, Forty percent of the boys and sixty percent of the girls felt that their mental health had worsened uh, after during and uh, during the pandemic and after the pandemic so that's uh, that's a huge proportion and now we need to we don't quite we haven't quite figured out um what exactly what what are the aspects of the pandemic that have have caused this so we need to tease this out a bit more but loneliness seems to be something that that does they do talk about a lot and that increase you know go back to at least the increase in social media use and also so in, for some young people an increase in substance use and I suppose a lack of their structured activities so there's a number of factors and hopefully some of this may wash out but you know a lot of it may not and we need to you know we, we, we need to monitor this over the coming years
1: that's very interesting. The Surgeon General in a report last year said that this is the most connected generation ever, but the loneliest generation yeah, ever. Yeah. That's kind of coming through yeah, in, yeah. In, in some of, the, of this this research. No, yeah. Lisa, your, your friends, your colleagues, what, what would they say about the impact of the, the pandemic?
4: Yeah, I, I think just to, to go back to your comment there, like there's a song called Modern Loneliness and it's, um, we're never alone, but always depressed. Um, and I think that maybe captures what, possibly it's like to be a, a young person today, that you're, you're never really alone because you're always able to reach out to people, yet you're still feeling lonely, and that, that can be quite complex. And um, So some research that uh, a classmate of mine, Anna Whitaker, did with Mary actually, on students at RCSI, revealed that a lack of motivation was something that really people experienced. And that is around just that hunger for life. People didn't necessarily feel that in the last two years. And I think that comes from not being able to plan beyond the weekend. Um, As a young person, you want to dream, you want to have big dreams, but when you're not able to to plan beyond the weekend, I think that really impacts your motivation to, to work towards some of those dreams. And then other issues like anxiety because of the unpredictability, and then loneliness and isolation. So particularly for new college students, not having or feeling connected to your college um, because you haven't made those friends or you haven't connected with your professors or your course. And then for the more senior students, I suppose, actually not having those milestone moments, which really solidify your college experience or your young adult years. So I think those would be the main, main three things that really were themes that emerged from that,
1: that research. It's very interesting. And of course the, the, there's been tremendous intergenerational solidarity because young people have given up a lot because for older people like me to you know to, to protect. But would would it be the same in Australia with the same system? No, very impact. similar to what um,
2: uh, Mary and Lisa are saying. Um, but your point then, just then, about intergenerational solidarity, which is pretty remarkable, mm-hmm. because one of the causes, you know, there's a recent book uh, published uh, by the KCL, um, Bobby Duffy, at, in in London, on it's called Generations, and it talks about why this is actually happening to young people. And some of the mythology that the generations like Generation Y and X and Z, that they're some completely different planets from each other, there's much more commonality there actually, really. But what has happened over the last 15, 20 years in the neoliberal world that we live in, is is a wealth transfer from 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 young people to old people, and there's been a, a massive neglect of young people actually, in, in, in across the board in socio socioeconomic terms, which is affecting all of these things. And and uh, that the surgeon general that you mentioned, he comments on these things in his report just just before Christmas last year, and refers to this youth mental health crisis. And it hasn't come out of the blue. It's come out of mega trends in society, making an existing problem worse. You know, and and pandemic's just the next layer of insult on top of it, which has increased need for care by 25%. It's not just diffuse things like loneliness. That sounds like normal, a normal problem that everyone has. But actually, it's more serious than that. We've seen a big surge in anorexia, a big surge in caseness, in in need for care, not just more more social contact, but need for professional help. And um, that's on a low base. You know, here in Ireland, there are major problems in, in even meeting the needs of young people in transition, even before the pandemic. Massive, massive holes in the system, which the government has not not really dealt with yet. They have made some green shoots with Jigsaw and, and other initiatives, and what Mary's work here. But it's 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 massively underestimated by governments all around the world that the need here, and also the payoff, which we we mentioned at the beginning, the payoff. It's it's a really form of self harm that society inflicts on itself. By neglecting young people and not looking after them, because they are the the, the power generation
1: that's going to lead us into the next phase. Yeah, and that so. plays out for years. Yeah. Helen, so if we if we come to talk now a little bit about what what we can do or what people themselves can do, you know, how, how do we protect young people's uh, mental
0: health? And I th- I think it's really really an important question, and and what we certainly how I would look at it and and think about it and coming back to Lisa's point, there are things that all of us can do to nurture and promote our mental health. Um, And so that's our starting point is that we need to do that. Really interesting to hear those findings, for example, from students about that loss of hopes and dreams. Because we know that people who have good mental health and young people have hopes and dreams, have a sense of a purpose have a future in mind. And that holding on to those hopes and dreams really matters in terms of your your mental health and your well-being. But other things really matter too. Connection to others. Um, We are born to be in relationship with other people. Connections matter hugely. And so again, we see in the pandemic how that disconnection uh, really affected all of us, and certainly young people at a time where they are forging and, and really trying to find your place and space. When people have good mental health, they tend to feel a sense of belonging in the world. And when you're young, there's this whole phase where you're trying to explore who you are, your identity. It's completely natural and normal to, to explore that and to struggle and to you know, wonder. Um, but what really helps young people is to feel that they found their people. And when you're young, and sometimes in Ireland and in other places, there's a sort of bit of a pressure to conform. Um, and there isn't always space. To have your own identity that might be different. So what we're always saying to young people is that you know try to find those like-minded others and find a place and space for yourself. Find and have meaning. It's not about the quantity of connections. It's not about likes on Instagram. It's about quality of relationship and connection. It's about holding, as I said, onto those dreams and those and those wishes. Um, the other thing, though, in terms of protecting young people's mental health is that we know, for example, that if you've got stress or adversity or trauma, that that's a risk factor for you. So we need to try and reduce stress. Uh, We need to help young people learn coping mechanisms to deal with stressful life events um, or stressors. But we also need to recognize the impact of some of those life experiences that young people are, are living through and experiencing and respond meaningfully to them. Uh, And in terms of protecting young people's mental health, we also, as Pat said, we need to have services and supports available for young people so that when we encourage them and hopefully they do reach out, that they are met by something or someone who can actually meet their needs and, and respond in a meaningful
1: way. So it's it's a question of the the individual, but also the system being able to support people as they transit through these really important stages, developmental stages.
0: Yeah, yeah. and we need to think of it as as a continuum. And we have to acknowledge that on that continuum, even for young people who do all what they're told are the right things to protect their mental health, for some young people, they'll still transition and have very serious and significant mental health difficulties. And that is not a failure on the part of any young person. It's not a failure on them and we have to be really careful about that language around do all this and you'll be fine. Um, sometimes young people aren't fine and that can't be on them to feel responsible. And we have a, an onus and a duty to respond to them and to provide a of suite and a range of services that, that are tailored to meet their needs. Lisa, how does that
1: resonate with how you would see things?
0: So I, I would completely agree with what
4: Helen's saying there. I mean, finding a group of people that perhaps you don't have a connection with them outside of the particular activity that you're doing, whether that be sport, art, music, dance, whatever it is, poetry. Um, but the fact that there is a group of people relying on you to show up on a weekly basis to do your part, to contribute, it is so valuable for your self-esteem, your self-confidence. Um, and equally and You've kind of mentioned it there. It gives you access to a whole other support network outside of your immediate family and friends, um, where you have this shared interest and this passion for something um, that maybe isn't your college course or your job. It's something distinct that you get to spend time doing that you really love with people who love it too. And I think a really important aspect of that is it also gives you access to this intergenerational friendships. So if you're on a team, for instance, with people who are a few years older than you, people who are a few years younger than you, you can help out the younger people. That gives you that self-esteem. But people older than you can actually provide guidance that perhaps your parents or your um, guardians can't offer to you at a given point in time in your life. So it just opens out that support network um, and makes it more available to you. Um, So I think that that's finding that community whatever it is, is, is so valuable.
0: And, and just in, in response to that, it, it is really interesting. There was a, the biggest survey of youth mental health in Ireland, the My World survey that was undertaken uh, by Barbara Dooley and colleagues in, in UCD and in collaboration with Jigsaw um, found that having access to a trusted adult was a hugely protective factor. This intergenerational kind of dynamic and, and being connected and having a trusted adult in your life protected a lot of young people. You know, the, so they scored... Much better on scales of anxiety, depression, um, you know, they were more connected with, with their peers. So, we, we're always encouraging uh, young people and adults in young people's lives to turn up and be present for them um, because we know that that really matters. We know it
1: does. It's remarkable how many of us would say, if you look back on people who have influenced us in our own yeah. careers, how often teachers, you yes. know, some lecturers, people like that, there's a the kind of ways in which we, 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 and in the academic community can help. So, so just bringing that on, Mary. Schools and colleges have a major role here, but clearly we have to support uh, teachers, academic staff, professional staff in in moving this on. What what's your sense of that? How that can be done?
3: Uh, you're right. This this is a very important area. This is uh, school is where children spend and young people spend the majority of their day. Um, so, and and the My World Survey, as as Helen uh, was talking about earlier. In that survey, the young people identified anxiety about school, anxiety about exams, in particular, as a major stressor for them. So we can't, we definitely can't ignore the role of schools in in, in this. And also, I suppose the the, the schools have a. You know, we we can't ignore also the the issue of bullying in schools. I mean, that's a major stressor for young people and, and needs to be tackled within the school environment. So. Um, so schools have, have two roles to play, one in identifying uh, young people at risk and, and the other in, in, in educating young people about, about mental health, about how to overcome these, how to avoid the risk factors, how to boost up the protective factors and, and seek help. Um, we, have, we have here in society recognised the, the, the importance of, of educating educators and we have a website called mentalhealtheducate.ie, which is available on our website to provide, it was initially for, for teachers, but we we're also aiming it at parents and, you know, uh, Guardians, so people can just learn about a, a little about mental illness, so they can better communicate with their with their youth. So, there's a huge role here for schools, and the the governmental task force in 19, 2017 recognised that as one of the recommendations to improve um, improve mental health input into schools and education of teachers and educating teachers to
1: recognise the early warning signs. So, thanks for that. We'll put those websites up from the session for anybody who wants to follow up on that. Pat, you have a great deal of experience in in this space. So for for people watching, when we think about the things that might indicate that a young person is actually struggling with their mental health, what would be the main markers uh, that there's a a problem there?
2: Well, well, one of the the challenges is um, some of the myths about adolescence and, and uh, that somehow everyone's got to suffer, you know, that it's normal to have, you know, emotional t- turmoil and all of that kind of stuff. Well, obviously, like as Helen was, was explaining, it's a very challenging period of life and, and there are lots of, you know, um, uh, risks and, 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 and risk taking is necessary and all that sort of stuff. So, um, so you don't want to medicalize everything, you know. But it's it's pretty simple, really, and people get tied up in ideological knots about this stuff all the time, about labelling and, and this kind of stuff. But really, when someone's distressed for a significant period, you know, more than a few days, you know, or if their their lives are clearly going south, you know, like in their relationships or or their study or their vocational pathways, and they they might not recognise it as, as as Helen said themselves, and or admit it, you know, uh, or be able to reach out. So. But the people around them have to recognize it. It's called the second circle, you know, and that's the peer group, you know, coming to what Lisa's sort of saying. And if and this is the problem of the pandemic. The peer group was detached, you know, so a whole lot of people fell into a big hole, you know, without any any sort of safety nets. And so the second circle, the parents are obviously critical. No one, by and large, no one cares more about the kid than the parents and they'll do anything for their kids. So. They have to actually be tapped into as a resource. And a lot of professionals are trained in this massively individual way, and they try to exclude the family and, and on the basis of confidentiality and, and privacy. Now, obviously you've got to respect that because you've got to form a relationship with the young person when you when you try to help them as a as a therapist. But there's a way of doing it without casting the scaffolding aside, you know, whether it's the peer group. And one of the things I'd I'd say, and, and I'm sure Helen and, and Mary, which we've worked together on for years on. We cannot build the right cultures of care without the young people's leadership and, and, and collaboration because that's the, the secret weapon we've had. That's why we have made the progress that we've had because the young people like Lisa have helped us to design it and operate it in the right way. And, and that's been a massive learning experience for us as professionals.
1: It's very interesting what you say there about families, because families are, are systems, complex systems. So the, the elements of the system have to be involved in in, in the process here. Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: And. That doesn't mean we have to go back to 1970s family therapy where everyone has to sit in a room for six months, you know. Um, but we, we, we get more practical about those things and, and uh, use a bit of common sense sometimes too. And, but um, th- the other thing I'd say is if you can demonstrate through oases of, of quality care uh, um, that, that uh, you know, a transformational approach to this area is, is possible, that's what is happening now, that's the progress. We, we, we know lot, an awful lot more can be done about this problem. So this sense of pessimism and defeatism that you see right throughout mental health care around the world has, has got to be overcome. And, and uh, Ireland's one of the countries that's got the potential to do that. It's already made some very good you know, uh, early steps that Helen referred to. But you know, it'll strengthen the country enormously if, if this issue is tackled more seriously.
1: And that's what you've done in Australia with True Origin, I think. Is that am I right about these centres? Yeah, we, we've done similar
2: things, you know. Um, and and uh, we, I'd say we're still at the base camp. You know, we, we, we've got a base camp at least, uh, or a launching pad. But um, you know, still, you know, uh, um, a lot of young people are not getting the help that they, they, they need and deserve. And then the, the, the risk factors, which we started to talk about, have got to be addressed as well. To, society's got to take a good hard look at itself. You know, all around the world, uh, around the, the, the fate of young people. Mm. Mm.
1: So following on from that Helen what should we do when we start to become concerned parents, teachers colleagues, friends and so on what, what's the advice there and what we, we should be doing?
0: I'm going to start with something really really core because uh, it, it's very easy to rush to to do um, and before we ever do if somebody if we're worried about someone or we know someone is struggling or a young person has, has reached out is, is, is the capacity to sit and listen and acknowledge what they're experiencing before you do anything else. Um, and one of the things particularly we know with parents who as Pat said like they are typically you know there to, to protect and want and have this desperate urge to do so is the risk that you rush in to solve or give advice or dismiss potentially the issue. And so what I always say to, to people is if you can find a way to just start with this notion of empathy, which matters to all of us, it's a human need that if we are struggling or in distress, that somebody recognizes our subjective experience of that and sit in that place first. And that, that is a starting point to, because we have to understand and hear from the young people themselves, from each person, what is going on for them for us to truly be able to offer them the support that they need. So that means just holding back from jumping in, not quickly rescuing, um, not solving all the problems for your young people. And then once you can do that and, and sit with that listening and, and understand, certainly then we can move to try and either, to, if, it's a, if it's a problem, we know that coping mechanisms and problem solving, you can, you can work through things uh, with young people. Sometimes just listening, just being heard, just having your needs recognised or your, your the stuff you're, you're struggling with can make a massive transformation for young people. But of course, there are other young people who are, as Pat said, when you're looking at, you know, it's been going on for weeks, it's affecting their, their lives, you know, that the stuff that's happening for them is more significant, then we do need to look to, to try and reach out and connect in with services and supports potentially uh, for young people and try to route them to, to the ones that are... are most appropriate to the needs that right. they have.
1: That's really interesting. So it's stepping back, It's really the listening. Yeah. Par- parents often feel com- helpless in these kinds of situations when these problems are emerging. They don't know what to do or where to start, and then difficult to get access to services. So that would be the starting point. To just, just take yeah, take. Because it it it's in.
0: a lot of pressure, I think, on parents always to do and fix, yes, and and we know that it's complicated. So if we're and and you know, if we think about our own times that we've struggled or had times where we felt very anxious or, or our mood has dropped, that that what we often want, so you're, you're always trying to think, I, I always say it's helpful to think about things in parallel. So there's often two things happening, you know, um, and, and that there might be opportunities for growth or resilience or, you know, through adverse experiences, but we have to recognise what's happening. And young people, one of the things for young people is that they struggle with reaching out often to get help, particularly, actually, uh, boys and young men. Now, if we don't get it right, so if you are a young person and you reach out and you come forward and you you share and you're not met with empathy, if someone's not listening, if they rush in or they don't hear correctly or they um, kind of really misread, young people have said in research they may never go back and seek help again. So it's, it's almost about giving yourself permission to not do and just be with someone first. And to recognize there is immense sort of therapeutic value in that alone. That doesn't mean that it solves everything or that it's the only thing to do. But it is an essential and like a really powerful, powerful thing to, to start with,
1: yeah. I often think about Eric Fromm's book, Doing and Being. What we're talking about here is being Absolutely. with the person rather than doing, doing. yeah. So when it comes to the point of looking for, for assistance, I have, here in Ireland, Mary, what, what kinds of services are available in relation to young people? Well, health? I suppose uh,
3: there's, there's a range of, of levels of services, and I suppose one of the first things to do I suppose, uh, would be to look for information. And so, you know, on, there's very reputable uh, sites that can give information, such as... Um, the uh, spunout.ie is really good for young people uh, themselves to access information about a range of mental health conditions and how you know how they could could get support written in very, um, you know, kind of friendly language for young people. Um, jigsaw.ie uh, also has has supports and indeed Jigsaw is. It could be I suppose the first port of call for some for some kind of problems. Jigsaw is this uh, organization that provides counseling uh, and, and uh, anxiety management support to young people aged between twelve and twenty five and it's a self self referral system or a parent can refer in um, or uh, you know a teacher. so so it's very and, and you get free um, six to eight free free sessions so that, that that's that's a good first port of call, but if there are young people who may need more specialized care than that. Um, so in that case, I think you'd, you'd need to talk to your family uh, doctor, your GP, and perhaps look for a referral to... Your GP may feel that, that they can deal with the issue, and, and often they're, they are trained. They have had some mental health um, training themselves during their their, their uh, general practice training. Um, but they may refer on to the Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, which we call CAMS, and that's for up to 18. And then, or if a child is 18 or over, it would be to the adult adult mental health service. And everyone, every address in the country is entitled to, every, every, every person in the country is entitled to care in their local team. So there will be a team attached to where you, where you live. Um, and then, of course, if you're in college, there will be, there's a range of counselling supports. And each college, um, for instance, RCSI here has, a, has a, a, a large range of supports for students. So there will be a student health centre or a student counselling centre in each college.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Do, do do students use those facilities? Is that where they would turn in your naturally from your knowing from, from your friends, your colleagues? Yeah, so?
4: I, a part of the research that Anna Whitaker and Mary were working on is asking those sorts of questions. Yes. Um, I think similar to to um, Helen's point earlier, there there still is that stigma of actually asking for help, um, but the first port of call may be to actually an online resource where you can. Get maybe a soft introduction to what what might therapy even look like because I think there's an intimidation there where maybe you see, and it sounds ridiculous, but you see it in a movie and you're like, my goodness, that is not for me. Um, so I think the first introduction might be through a Google search or an Instagram page or an influencer actually saying, I went to therapy and it was the best thing that I've ever done, for instance. And I think that's how people begin to actually say, hmm, maybe I'll. That's a soft introduction before they actually go and they reach out. But certainly, um, the research that that, um, has been worked on does show that people actually do take the college counselling services up. Um, I think you get 12 free sessions here at RCSI, um, and that people do actually use them and actually find them very rewarding once they get access to them.
1: Right, right. We'll talk in a moment about take-home messages, but I'd just like to come back to something, Pat, that you said earlier you know we've talked about you know mental health problems in young people but th- this notion that adolescence and you know that transition stage always has to be terribly difficult and, and so we've kind of framed that in western thinking but many people will go through these phases and they'll be they'll be fine well there's a study
2: in New Zealand from Christchurch that followed um, young people from i think it was maybe late primary through to the age of 30 and they found that 50% of the young people during that phase met, met the threshold for a need for care. You know? okay. So it's so you could say it's 50/50. Yeah. Um, but 50s a lot. Uh, just picking up on, on what Lisa and Helen and, and Mary were saying that the soft entry idea, you know that's what Helen I, I think was alluding to it how to engage the person, how to, how to listen, how to engage that, that, that first contact is, can be crucial you know for, for good or ill, you know. But it's also the culture that that professional is sitting in. It's not just that the single practitioner model doesn't work, you know, basically. On a, you need a, a team for horizontally integrated, uh, you know, in the primary care level like Jigsaw and, and Headspace in Australia. But then the big weakness now is, is not so much the entry portal, although that needs still a lot of attention, I'd say, and support. But, and maybe there are new ways to access it, like, like Lisa was saying, Instagram and, and so on, influencers and new concepts for us, you know. But um, the big hole is the backup system. We call it the missing middle in Australia because two-thirds of those young people that come into those first stage primary care type things like you just heard about, two-thirds of them need more than that. They need expertise, you know, of a higher level and for a longer period than a few sessions, you know. And they've got more complex and, and, th- and probably more dangerous or, or threatening problems. And just make another comment about the parents, too, because the parents, trying to get them to adopt the right stance, as Helen was saying, can be very difficult when you've got a, a young person in the upstairs bedroom self harming or starving themselves to death or hallucinating. <laughs> so that's not something you can approach with a great equ- equanimity. Mm-hmm. And, and so the parents do need a lot of education support and assistance. And what they find, you know, beyond that primary care approach, like they go to the GP, the GP does their best, but they need more, and they're presented with waiting lists of 12 months, you know. That is a very unacceptable situation, which is in every high-income country for these young people.
1: And it's really serious, because we're talking about potential... I mean, we're talking, to be blunt about it, we're talking about this is li- these are life-threatening well, The biggest situations. cause of
2: death for young people in Australia is suicide. By a mile, now, and and uh, our prime minister that just lost office a couple of weeks ago, he made that one of his big targets to, to reduce that, and and uh, and I think that was the one of the prime movers behind Jigsaw getting going in Ireland, the suicide rate in young people. These are preventable
1: deaths, every single one of them. Yeah, that, that's incredible. How would you say that in terms of Ireland, Mary? The suicide rate, that, that, how big the suicide rate is. Uh... We uh,
3: we we had. Um... You know, for many years, the problem with young male suicide rates, we were one of the highest in Europe. Um, we're still high, um, but it's coming down. Um, and I think because of this focus that the government has put on suicide prevention, um, and, you know, previous governments have really targeted it, they have set up a whole agency, the National Suicide Prevention um, Foundation, to, to, um, to tackle this, and there is a whole connecting for knife policy. So it shows when the government focuses on something, you can actually get results now, I suppose what we would like to do is broaden out from just suicide prevention to to all mental health, and if there was the same focus, we could really achieve something yes,
1: yeah, that requires investment and, yes. and political action and so on and that's important so can I can I hold with you there, Mary if we're going I'm just going to go around the panel and just ask you know you know what would be your your key take home messages be for for
3: people? I suppose following on from what we were just talking about, I think we need more political attention on mental health particularly for young people Um, our services are struggling I mean I mentioned um, the child and adolescent mental health services I mentioned the adult services they are woefully under-resourced in this country and money was poured into um, you know physical health services during the pandemic but it wasn't poured into the mental health services at all so if we could have that that political attention and the way to achieve that would be advocacy on the ground I think Young people, I think parents, family members need to make their voices heard here and say, this is important to us. And then, I think then change could happen.
1: Yeah. So we need to be talking to our, politi- our re- public representatives and so on. Thanks for that. Same same question. Yeah, from your perspective, what what's the take-home message from the way you would see this? I think
4: for me, and this is even from personal experience, just never underestimate the value of... text or a call or a random act of kindness for any young person so i mean right now if there's a young person on your mind maybe they're your your child or someone that you interact with just reach out to them say i thought of you and because feeling that you're valued by someone maybe you have a photo together whatever it is maybe an article that you read that you thought of them just send it to them and because i think that that's so valuable for a young person to feel like or anyone to feel like that they've been thought of uh, in a given moment. So That's think...
1: very interesting. Because sometimes people tend to sit back and kind of don't want to intervene, but you're saying open out and build, a, build a, the the link. Yeah, okay, thanks for that. Uh, Helen, what would your take on, on that, your take-home message be?
0: Yeah,
1: I think, and, and follow on from, from
0: Lisa, I suppose it's a couple of things, I think, for, for parents, it's and, and in response to what Pat is saying is to also get support for yourself as a parent, um, particularly if you've got a young person who's struggling, um, that... That is, is, it's a huge amount to carry if you've got a young person who, and, and we know there are there are many, many young people who are struggling out there and many parents who are really trying to find a way uh, to be there and to get those supports. So so mind yourselves if you are minding young people. Uh, and of course, I will come back to empathy and listening and never underestimate the power of, of, of that being, as you said, rather than doing. Um, And it, it's an incredibly... Pivotal, pivotal, and and powerful starting point for any young person to feel that they are um, with someone who's able to just be with them and hear what's going on for them.
2: Yeah.
1: Thanks very much for that. And and Pat, finally, it's it's great to have you here uh, in Ireland. You've been you've been involved in this. For many years. What what's your take home message? Yeah,
2: I think at two levels. One is that. Um, for the young people themselves, and for their their family and friends, don't give up even even if you even if even if you are hitting barriers and, and trying to get help because it could be life saving, you know. Yeah. And and there's always going to be a way if if you if you fight hard enough uh, at, the, at that level. But I, I really agree with what Mary said actually. And in Australia, um, we've had a royal commission in the state of Victoria because the mental health system was allowed to deteriorate, you know, the, especially the specialist system, you know. And they realised they had an antiquated system. Uh, which was divided into child and adolescent and adult mental health. Um, That's fine for for physical health problems. It doesn't work at all for for mental health problems. There's a huge weakness in the middle, which is what we've been talking about today, the adolescent-young-adult part. Um, And they've agreed to to shift the boundary, the upper boundary of the youth bit to age 25 to map onto the headspace, which is the primary care system, the jigsaw system here. So that's the best thing that could happen here in Ireland not just money and, and people, but restructuring you know, and making the system strongest you know, where it needs to be strong. And, and Mary's done some great work within the college here to create a faculty of youth, youth psychiatry. So you, you'll get a whole new cohort of emerging young psychiatrists who are trained in this specialty, really, um, it needs to be the child in adolescent is inadequate for this, yes. and so is the adult. They come out of different traditions and they 're and both short of the mark. This is a new field we've, we 've been creating together around the world Ireland 's been very important in that that 's achievable with a bit of vision and innovation, and the country' shown that over the last you know couple of decades i think it 's been very, very progressive, and this is the opportunity here to go to the extra mile if that 's done. You get you get hope and optimism into the system, and mm-hmm. instead of the pessimism that you see in many parts of mental health, mm. and even among the young people. There was a quote from a young person, you know, coming out of COVID, saying, "You know, we always get the raw deal of everything." You know, coming back to what what you were saying about all the money that was spent on physical health and nothing to support the young people. So, yeah. so yeah. we've really got to think differently and in a reform-minded way. That's on on the geopolitical level, if I want to put it that way. Sure, but yeah. it's possible in a country like Ireland. Yeah. It really is. And then the people, it's got to come from the people. It's people power. That's The Royal Commission in Victoria was powered by people. Yeah, And, yeah. and if the people of Ireland recognised the importance of this problem, it would happen very quickly, I think.
1: Yeah. And this is something that affects millions of, of people. I mean, in, in every, every country developed or developing. I'm reminded by what say, Einstein's quote, we can't think our way out of problems using the same thinking we, we thought to get into them. So we need a fresh new way of thinking about this, is cohort of young people who fall between the, the stools of the child and adolescent psychiatry and then adults. That psychiatry. quite reminds me
2: of the slide I used the other day, which was um, the, the, the invention of the electric light didn't come
1: from quality improvement of candles. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. That's probably a perfect point in which to, uh, to wrap up, a, a hopeful point for some light uh, for the future. Thank you all very much. And that concludes uh, our discussion today. My sincere thanks to our guest speakers, uh, to Pat, to Mary, to Lisa, uh, and to Helen. Further details on upcoming events in the RCSI My Health series can be found uh, on the RCSI website.
0: Thank you for listening to RCSI My Health. We hope you found this episode useful and informative. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date on health related topics directly from the experts. For more information on RCSI My Health series, please visit rcsi.com forward slash My Health Lectures.